This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Welcome to part two of our interview with Dr. Michael Tuick. In case you missed the last episode, Mike is a well-renowned and respected professor of psychology from Utah State University. Dr. Tuig currently co-runs the ACT research group with his colleague, Dr. Levin. His research focuses on the use of acceptance and commitment therapy across a variety of clinical presentations with an emphasis on obsessive compulsive and related disorders. He has published over 200 scholarly works, including seven books. His research has been funded through multiple sources, including the National Institute of Mental Health and the International OCD Foundation. In this second part of the episode, we dive into common pitfalls when treating OCD, and Mike talks to us about his two most recent books, Act in Steps with Dr. Michael Levin and Dr. Clarissa Ong, and The Anxious Perfectionist with Dr. Clarissa Ong. You'll also hear Mike talk briefly about his fear of ruining his career. (laughs) Let's get started. Mike, we supervise a lot of psychologists as well who want to learn more about this. And is it okay with you if we jump into some common questions that we get? And I think you alluded to it just before in terms of when you're learning about how to do ACT and you're more less metaphorical and experiential and more kind of rule bound. We like one of the things we try to do is to teach more flexibility, oddly enough. So it's almost like we're doing a parallel of what we would do with our clients. We just thought it might be a good idea to go through a couple of pitfalls in terms of some hurdles that supervisees come across when they're working with their clients. So just kind of an extension of what Tori was asking before. One thing we often notice is when perfectionism gets in the way. So not only us, we see it too, but our supervisees often talk about when clients get stuck in this idea of needing to do treatment right. So we might be talking about treatment from a treatment principles and applying it and going with it in session. But then the clients then internalize that and try to perfect it and go on, am I doing this right? But this was what I needed to do. And this is how I diffuse. And this is how I sit with my discomfort. And rather than just being flexible with it, how, what's your experience of perfectionism getting in the way of treatment? I'll usually say something like in the same way an obsession feels really disturbing and uncomfortable doing something fully and well for you probably feels really good. And I just say, watch out for the credit you give that feeling that if you have like a compass or some kind of gauge, then it's not always telling you it's not valid, right? It's not giving you the right information. So when something feels really disgusting and overwhelming, your body's spitting out a lot. And when it tells you that like, oh, you did that great, you're nailing this, this is going to get you to where you need to be, watch out for that too. So let's base our moves and our successes on, we use the term a lot like workability, is this getting you to what you want and where you want and how it feels like that is not a very good judge. Like this whole interview, you know, if I was saying like, oh, I'll be happy with it if every word comes out 
perfectly and I say everything how I want to say, well, it's hopeless. But you know, did I put in a good effort? Did I try? Did I focus? Was it good enough? Yeah. And then the end outcomes would be, well, this was decent and people probably think it's all right and other people will invite me. You know, and that's the workability. Like, look at your life. Like, is this working out for you? One of the things I think that I come across sometimes with clients with perfectionism is that they actually don't necessarily want to change those aspects of themselves, that they actually, that it's so sort of integral to their sense of self and their identity that actually doing some of these exposures, they feel like they're losing a part of themselves that they actually really value. And it's hard for them to think about doing exposures and for fear of losing a part of themselves that defines who they are. You know, it's almost like I asked you to ask me that question. (laughs) You know, I love that question. I think of it a lot. Perfectionism is like a superpower. You need to know when and how to use it. Like if someone loves the feeling of perfectionism, well, that will work great for you in doing that particular project or designing that particular thing or maybe some area of your career or whatever, like you'll find your place where like engaging with that and following it works out wonderfully. And then you can say, let's dig through the places where it doesn't work at all as the opposite effect. And isn't everything in our life like that? Like you don't always want to be super nice. You don't always want to be super mean, always want to be loving. Like it's a thing to do at certain times. And what if like with OCD things, that's a time we don't follow that feeling because it usually doesn't take us where we want to go. Yeah. Know when to use it and how. Yeah. So it's that thread of coming back to your values, isn't it? And coming back to having a really strong sense of what it is that you want from your life and what is a life fully lived and fully engaged with. And the perfectionism thing is funny because it's not like, yes, I can be perfectionistic at work, but not at home. It's more like moment to moment. When do I hold on to it? What let it go? Maybe I want to be perfectionistic with this work I'm doing. But then once I've proofread it once, now I probably need to let it go. Because three more times, it hardly improves it and it takes a ton of time. Yeah, Mm, absolutely. Lessons for me in there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things my clients often come across is when they say, oh, but I'm not perfectionistic. But really what we often discover is their ideas and standards of themselves and others as opposed to aesthetic perfectionism is something that I think a lot of people miss and they don't recognize that that's getting in the way of making those decisions that we're talking about. So I think it's important to kind of make that distinction, perhaps in a sense of going, there's different types of perfectionism that will work in different ways in different areas of our lives. And entangling that too, to help our clients get out unstuck can also be helpful. I think you're really right. I like that you're pointing out that people show their perfectionism in certain things and not other things. So I think it's important to know that professionally, we call it perfectionism, procrastination. Oh, I'm really guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, if I can do it really well, and you know, like I have all the time and the resources, I'll do it. But if I can't do it that well, then I'm not going to do it at all. Then it's like it starts to show in certain areas and other areas we give up. So like I can picture a person who is like super overboard about their lawn. And then you go in their house and it's a total mess. And it's just, I'm either going to do it all the way or I'm not going to touch it. Yeah. The all or nothing. We often see that probably for the first time in a lot of people's lives, if we're lucky enough to work with them across a bit of a trajectory in senior high school, like the very final year where they're about to kind of move into university or college or whatever, where they want to perform well and they do well. And then you've got those kids that drive themselves into the ground. And then you've got kids who are like, if I'm not going to get the perfect score, 
then I'm not going to do it at all. Oh, yeah. It's really painful to watch. And your grade point average, do you, it's like a 4.0 perfect. It's just totally different. We work out of like sort of out of 100, really. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And where I am, this person was all perfect grades and got what we would say one A minus, right? So it was just like one, this little, little sliver below perfect. And she said, should I retake that class? Oh, like, oh my gosh. no. <laughs> you will not get a job if you retake that class. They're going to look at your transcript and think, what is happening here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it feels perfect, but it's not functional. I love that functional. It's about functionality. How is this functioning for you? One of the other things that we come across, we hear a lot, and it's an alternative way, I think, of working with OCD is the notion of sort of using externalization techniques, such as the notion of the OCD story, or, you know, that's OCD talking. And I know that that probably sits far more with CBT than it does ACT. And I guess we're curious about that, especially I think it's in a lot of children's literature around OCD about, which is a pretty classic technique about the worry monster or the OCD monster and externalizing it, naming it, and then helping it as a technique to help children identify their intrusive thoughts and their obsessions. But then it becomes a story of, well, there goes the OCD monster. You know, we can talk back to OCD and I think the concern that I've had as time has gone on is that that is actually reinforcing this message that actually we shouldn't be having these thoughts. Or I think it encourages young people to get hooked into an argument with their obsessions. And I think it then becomes something that they then can't conquer. I appreciate it at some levels, but I know that the ACT approach is quite different to that. And we're curious about your take on these techniques and the pitfalls of that. That's an interesting question. I have experience with it, but I haven't really thought about it in a more cognitive challenging versus psychflex model. We do things where we name the OCD. And what we mean by that probably is that that feeling of anxiety, the chatter of the obsessions, the events that are happening in the body. We don't talk about it like a bad thing. It's more like it's this thing that's happening. And it's like, how do you want to interact with that? So to me, it's a bit of a diffusion selfish context that like you're not your obsessions, you're the place that has the obsessions. So when your obsessions are talking to you, like what power do you want to give them? How do you want to let them push you around? So I might, you know, an analogy I'd be more likely to use would be like, who's that annoying kid in your class? Or who's that sort of bossy teacher you don't love very much? And then it's like, well, how are you going to interact with them? Which would be different than like fight the monster. It's like, Ideas of ignoring, letting be, not giving attention to it. When you engage with it, does your life get better? You know, like the annoying kid in class, like when you argue with them, does that quiet him down? Probably not. You know, it probably gets annoying. So we end up taking that, that approach, not systematically, but it does happen. I often use one for adults as who's the annoying relative that likes to give you their two cents worth uninvited and you just smile and nod at them, but you do what you want to do anyway. That's right. Yeah. And one of the techniques that I know that you really like is passengers on the bus. Could you tell us a little bit about passengers on the bus? As a metaphor. Yeah, as a metaphor. Well, the idea is, is like if you're the driver and you say where you want to go. And I always like to say, on the front of the bus, you get to put your values, right? So this is like, I am going on a date with my wife. That's where I'm driving right now. And then this bus has an interesting rule, like a lot of buses. Passengers cannot come up 
and take the wheel and touch the driver. But in the back, they can be noisy. And these passengers, let's just say like they're your anxieties, they're your obsessions, and they can yell things at you and tell you where you want to go. And you're driving, you're following your values. And this is sort of the conundrum. Like, do you pull over the bus and try to kick them off? Do you scream at them while you drive? Do you fight with them? Do you bargain with them? When they yell at you to go a different direction, do you listen to that? Or is your life really about you learning how to drive with the noise that you have in the back, even if they're saying pretty horrific things? Like, can you keep going? And depending who I'm talking to, I use a different version. Like listeners can't hear this, but you have a sports jersey, I believe, behind you. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's my husband's. Celine was really worried about that being in the background. <laughs> I know. Oh, I'm like, I... people are going to think I'm a Carlton supporter. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> It's Australian rules football, but it's my husband's. He's very proud of it. <laughs> I tried to move it. It didn't fly. <laughs> if I was working with your husband, the analogy of like Carlton, is that the mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so if a Carlton player is playing whatever the sport is, and the audience is like screaming at you, calling you horrible and you suck. And can you stay focused and do your thing even with all the screaming at you? And anyone who knows sports knows that's like a huge part. And if the player even acknowledges the fans. They're like, yay, we got them. And it's that person's job to just keep doing their thing. Or like I've said, if you're a school teacher with kindergartners, that's like five and six-year-olds for us. They just say crazy stuff. You don't need to change the whole class because they said something. So any one of those sort of ways of describing it. It's a powerful metaphor. And I really feel like our clients really connect with that. And the power of having something to visualize, to sort of see themselves in action as sort of as a guide to how that might look when they're out and about living their lives, trying rather than just in the therapy session. It's a really powerful one. Celine and I run a group therapy program for teens with OCD, which is a lot of fun. And we act out passengers on the bus. We get to sit down the front and then everyone else sits at the back and pretends to be the passengers on the bus. They're screaming stuff out and (laughs) don't touch it. (laughs) Yeah. And the person at the front has to kind of stay focused and engaged in a bit of a conversation and practice diffusion and all that. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I don't know the person in the driver's seat thinks it's fun, but. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun for us to watch. (laughs) It's terrible. Mike, what is something you now know that you wish you had known earlier in your career? Always paying attention to the function of what the person says, not the content of what they say. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's you're great. speaking oh, our language. Yeah. Totally speaking our language. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have a private practice, and I feel like my game has really upped once I stopped responding to what the client just said to me and just paying attention, like, what's going on for them? What are they trying to get at? Where's their struggle? And then they just appreciate the sessions notably more because I'm actually hitting the issue. Yeah. I had a very similar moment when I switched supervisors about five years ago now. We do have for our professional development, is it same in the US where you have to have supervision every now and then to make like for debrief and case consultation and that kind of stuff? Post licensure or before? Post. Yeah, it's a condition of our registration here. There's minimum supervision requirements. Minimum requirements where we have to supervise with a senior to debrief and case consult and all that kind of stuff. It's a useful exercise. When I moved from being more of a early career psychologist to more in the middle and senior years, and I switched supervisors, mostly because my supervisor retired and it was devastating for me. (laughs) Anyway, after getting over that, 
we recorded an episode last week where we talked about switching now, where we talked about an analogy called form and function rather than focusing on what it looks like, which is the form, focus on the functionality of it. What is this serving? And once he enabled me to switch into similar to yourself, looking at what's the function here, it did. It totally changed the way I practiced and really upped the game. It really helps. And I think that's something that Tori and I often find our supervisees can get stuck with. And it's questions that we get asked a lot in terms of, this is the theme of OCD that I'm seeing. Do I need to do anything different? So they get caught in the content rather than looking at, irrespective of what the theme is, what's the purpose it's serving here? What is it doing? And I think our clients can get stuck in that too, where they're like, I have POCD or HOCD or ROCD. Does that mean I have to do a different type of treatment, et cetera? Yeah, or even other moves that a client does, like refusing to do some part of therapy or not doing between session work or showing up late or sending you an email. It's so easy to get caught up in like, what did they write? And really, like, what's this about? Absolutely. It's so important. Mike, we have been asking all of our guests if they would be willing to share some intrusive thoughts that they get, because we know that it's a normal part of being a human being. Have you got an intrusive thought you'd be willing to share? One of the ones I have, and OCD does attack the things you care about. I have a lot of like, oh, I could ruin my career so fast right now. <laughs> <laughs> like even right now, right? Because you could delete this video so I could, I'd survive. But right, I'm like in a faculty meeting and I'm like, oh, if I just, right? And there's things I could do that would be the end. And <laughs> that's one of mine. Mike, before we wrap up, can you tell us about your two most recent books? Because I know that they're exciting. I, I'm really excited to read them both. That is very kind of you to uh, give me that chance. So the first one is Act in Steps. And that was Oxford University Press. Came out in 2020. And honestly, what that is, is I've been teaching people how to do ACT for about 15 years at that point. And it's just a step-by-step manual of the way I've tried to help people learn how to do ACT. It really kind of felt like I was at a point where I had done this so many times, so many crops of new PhD students, and I had like walked them through the system. That's sort of laying all that out in a step-by-step sort of manualized, do this, then do this, then do this. So it's a real nice book, I think, for people who are starting. So graduate students or professionals coming over to this. Is that for a client of any age or more geared towards the adult client? more geared towards adults. And then a month ago, and interestingly, I bet in Australia, you probably have to wait a day or two until it comes out. might actually be more a day apart, interestingly. It may be out today for you. It's called The Anxious Perfectionist. That's my first self-help book that I wrote with Clarissa Ong. Actually, Clarissa Ong is the first author. And that's a self-help book for people to deal with their perfectionism It's not a workbook. It's more almost like short chapters that has almost a bit of a story feel. And it's a little more geared towards overachievers than maybe procrastinators. So honestly, a lot of professionals, grad students... Sign me up. Yeah, yeah, it's like the world we live in. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on this one. I listened to your interview on OCD stories about it. I was like, oh, not only is this interesting, but this is a book for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's kind of like... A little bit of like what Clarissa and I have pieces of and just like what we really deal with a lot. 
with our sort of high achieving, high performing clients that we have. Well, congratulations on both publications. I mean, you're a prolific writer, researcher, you have given so much to the community and we personally thank you for everything that you have taught us. Your research is a really big part of how we practice and what we do with our clients on an everyday basis. So thank you for everything that you do for professionals and clients alike. And thank you for your time this morning. This has been a real gift for Celine and I personally, but also for all of our listeners. I hope that this won't be the last time. Happy to do this again. You saying that means a lot to me, because I'll be honest, like when you're at university, looking out the window, you know, I sort of work in this little town and we just sort of plot along and do our things. And so for you to say it, it's impacted you, it means a lot. And the listeners didn't hear this. We were talking about this before. I feel very appreciative that people like you do these podcasts because I actually like to sit at the computer and write papers. And that sort of fits my personality. So thanks for getting out there and teaching people about these things and being a voice for all this work because we need people who want to do that too. So thanks a lot for doing that. Yeah. Being a translator of the work that you do and applying it and giving it real world practice. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative, To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break break the the rules. rules.